Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. We lost our humanity. We lost our dignity. We got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Good morning from Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, a city, a country under fire. It's fair to say that no one, even those who predicted the Russian invasion into Ukraine, expected the fighting to last this long. But in a few days, the war, or in Russian official parlance, special military operation, will enter its third year. There is nearly a stalemate at the front. Yet every day, dozens of lives, those of soldiers on both sides and civilians, mainly in Ukraine but also in Russia, are being lost. How, after two years of unsuccessful attempts by Mr. Putin's army to conquer Ukraine, is this conflict seen by ordinary Russians? How does it affect their lives? Do they change their views? My name is Oleg Bolderev. I'm a journalist with BBC Russian Service, and I have been speaking about the war with Russians both inside and outside the country. News bulletins on Russian TV did not change much. There is talk of fighting, but never of those killed, largely of Russian army successes, be they real or invented. In that relation, June 24th last year wasn't anything special, if you listen to Russian news. But not to one woman I spoke to. Yana lives in a village near the city of Vladivostok, on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. On June 24th, seven time zones away in Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine, her husband Evgeny, a mobilized soldier, private, wrote to her in WhatsApp what turned out to be his last message. Because we had a time difference with him of seven hours, it turns out that he also wrote to me at four o'clock in the morning. Our ammunition caught fire. We're almost surrounded. And I never got through to my husband again. And that's it. I call him, I write to him, no answer. And I had already sent him a voice message crying because I already had a hunch that something was wrong. And on the 28th, early in the morning, a photo of my husband arrived. We have a group for his regiment on the social networks. They published the photo and they were looking for me. They were looking for the wife. Yana says she wasn't much alarmed when, in September 2022, her husband answered the call for mobilization and immediately got drafted. She wasn't thinking much of the war at the time, she says. Neither did he. He said he didn't want to run away and hide. A month later, she saw him and men of his unit at a local airport. They left for southern Ukraine. It was quiet there back then, she says. But by the time her husband got two weeks of leave last February, things changed. He was disillusioned. He said his regiment and his commanders didn't care for him. He was sent to the firing line with few supplies and no food. 
I keep asking Yana whether her views of the war have changed by now. She's angry, that's clear. For seven months, her husband is still listed as missing in action. His body is not recovered, and, not being officially a soldier's widow, she can't be sure the state will support her. Military officials tell her that she should simply wait, that there is too many relatives like her. To this she says, yes, but I only had one husband. I want to finally sort out this whole story. I mean, at some level, I've come to terms with the fact that my husband is dead. But I'm saying I don't want to be left without any memory at all. This is not how people are treated. My husband isn't really a coward. He went to fight. Why should he be lying there somewhere, God knows where? This is unfair to our soldiers, military personnel who have been mobilized in general. It's not fair. It doesn't have to be that way. There is a group where people like Yana go to find news about their lost relatives. On Russian Vkontakte, the country's largest social network, this group has 87,000 subscribers. The last time Russian army published its losses in late 2022, the number stood at under 6,000 men. The BBC project counting Russian battlefield deaths has verified over 43,000 names of those killed so far. The complete figure is likely to be at least two times higher. Among hundreds of thousands of soldiers' wives and mothers, there are many who are getting more and more angry. Last November, a group of women quietly joined a regular communist rally near Kremlin and unfurled homemade paper placards demanding for all mobilized to be returned home. They didn't stand there long. Police arrived, the women brought the placards down and had to explain that their movement, the way home, is not against the special military operation. You still can't call this a war in public, but in private... The movement's members are more frank. Here's one woman from that November protest. We'll call her Yekaterina. My husband found himself at the front in October 2022 after receiving military summons. When he first got there more than 15 months ago, he went directly into the zone of very active fire. There may be a little less activity now, But then it was just some kind of meat grinder. They just threw them into it without training, without anything. They just pulled them out of civilian life. He left his hometown and ended up in the military unit and quickly was sent into combat. Yekaterina herself has been opposed to the war from its start. So much so that, having left her job recently, she says the silver lining is that now she won't support the war with her taxes. But it's a different story with her husband. It was simply a shock. It seemed impossible. And my husband, I don't think he supported all this. But this is the current attitude. And propaganda statements like we are protecting some population there began to work very quickly. However, in fact, it became clear that more civilians died now than in 2021 compared to 2022 in the same territories. In other words, it's clear that everyone knows that war is bad. 
But somehow the propagandists managed to convince many people, including my husband, that this is necessary, that this is protection. And that's very sad. Have his views changed? I'm guessing he can't say everything he thinks is possible. But I think that his views could have changed, after all, because he had the chance to see how little his state cares for him when he's at war indefinitely and mobilized. But he won't admit it, because it's so hard to admit it. The way home movement is walking a difficult line. During four months of silent picketing or giving interviews, the movement's members have not seen much police or legal harassment, which is very unusual for someone saying anything remotely critical of the way Russian government is waging this war. But their demands of demobilization are being ignored. By the end of last year, 450 people were put on trial for what the Russian criminal code now calls spreading false information or discrediting the Russian army. Human rights groups say the terms have become a catch-all method for dealing with opponents of the war. In circumstances like this, how do you measure public opinion? Well, one man thinks he found the answer. I'm Alexei Minailo, a Russian anti-Putin and anti-war activist. I live in Moscow, and uh, I run uh, a number of activities, the most prominent of which is the Chronicles Project. So we're trying to measure how tired the society is and how long it can cope without showing open dissent to what is happening. In addition to the obvious, do you support the war? Chronicles ask two other questions. Would people support President Putin's decision to withdraw troops without reaching the goal of his so-called special military operation. And where do Russia's budget priorities lay? In feeding the war effort or supporting social sector, education, healthcare, and so on? Alexei believes that by combining these answers, you get a more accurate picture. There have been 11 editions of Chronicles since the war began. And the results? We definitely see a lot of change. Uh, the biggest of them being that people with a consistent pro-war position, uh, their numbers are rapidly diminishing. People who consistently answer all these three questions, uh, who support the war, who wouldn't support withdrawal of the troops without reaching uh, goals of the war, and who think that army budget should be a priority, there were 22% of such people in February 2023. In October, only 12% left. Uh, whereas the number of the people who are uh, in favor of peace, even if it is peace through uh, so-called civilized laws, they would support the decision to withdraw troops without reaching the goals and who think that social sector should be budget priority. Their number is relatively stable, around 20%. So the number of anti-war people is relatively the same, but more and more people become unsure, disenchanted, uh, and so on. But whichever way you analyze it, there are still millions of Russians who believe that their country is doing the right thing. And if you thought these would be the older people who may share Vladimir Putin's outlook on geopolitics and global power, well, you'd be surprised. Here's one young man, a student of Russia's prestigious higher school of economics. His name is Maxim Lukyanenko. I'm a fourth-year student of higher school of economics. 
Also, I'm one of the founders of Russian patriotic organization, which is called White Raven. Deliver some necessary things to the guys who fight in Ukraine right now. Here, one of the soldiers from an artillery unit thanks Maxim and his group for helping the unit with electrical converters. For soldiers, this is help with charging their electronics from car batteries. But for White Raven, is this a political activity? It's not political, it's mostly patriotic. The main purpose is to unite the students of higher school of economics who want to support their country and want to see this unity of Russian nation so that uh, the guys who really love their country do not feel alone. The main purpose is uh, showing that despite different things happen, we should love our country, love our language and love our nation. But some students of our university, they really love to uh, always to say bad things about Russia, about Russian nation, just because they do not like something. And we disagree with that. There is debate around the White Raven group. What do people say, the people who disagree with you, what do they say? Yes, you know that it is strictly prohibited to say bad things about Russian military. Simply, you should be tolerant to everything which is happening right now. But if you have different point of view, it doesn't mean you will put in jail. Simply do not touch these sensible topics. But some people do it just so, so expressively uh, and they offend somebody. And this is incorrect. Of course, this may lead lead to punishments, certain punishments. In early February, the Higher School of Economics, until the invasion, the most liberal of Russian universities, created a new department of military economics and strategy. Its new head is a former admiral who started the job by saying that Russia is in a state of global war with the West. According to a recent research by news website Novaya Gazeta Europe, Since the start of the war, HSE has lost up to 10% of its teaching staff. Their views of teachings no longer fitted the larger political discourse. Many of them added to the largest wave of Russian emigration in decades. Two political activists fleeing from under surveillance, a teenager ethnic Ukrainian from Moscow, a 40-year-old protester fresh out of detention, a blogger who uses a wheelchair who can't get any donations because of the Western sanctions. These and many others needed help to survive the first days of often very urgent emigration. Many of them simply crossed the borders to countries like Georgia and Kazakhstan, which require no visas from Russians. Some of them ended up in many other states in Europe and Asia. Anastasia Burakova, a lawyer and a human rights activist, is a founder of the ARC project, the biggest initiative which assists Russian exiled community. I ask her whether there is any precise statistics. Oh, actually, nobody knows exactly, but I can say that we more or less estimate the numbers after the beginning of the war during uh, February, March and April 2022. Uh, there were about so close to a million 
And after the mobilization was announced, uh, the number is maybe about half of million uh, people or a little bit more. I can say that maybe half of them finally returned back to Russia. The first wave of immigration was mostly anti-war and uh, they left the country because of their values and uh, like position. The second wave in the end of September 2022, when the mobilization was announced, I can say that there were actually no pro-war people. Uh, there were a lot of people who stayed, you know, out of politics. Now I can say that the ARC project is the biggest project which assists uh, Russian exiles and also people with anti-war position inside the country. And uh, at the same time, we create communities in different countries countries and involve a lot of volunteers. More than 3,500 volunteers are involved in our activities. Then we create some political uh, active community. In this seminar run by ARC, participants discuss whether and how it will be possible to cooperate with supporters of President Putin when new liberal Russia emerges. Burakova thinks these are exactly the people who will be needed for political change in Russia to become a reality. But for now, they're in exile. Anastasia's personal case illustrates this too well. She had to leave even before the war, after her political and human rights activism angered Russian authorities. Recently, herself and the entire ARC project were labeled foreign agents. It carries many limitations. To write in my social network, in any publication, for example, if I uh, write something about the, my cat and so on, I need to write that this message was written by foreign agents and so on. That's why I live abroad. They can't uh, catch me in other country. So uh, I will not follow these rules because it's just a stigmatization and nothing more. We are resolved to continue imposing massive costs on Russia. The European Union and its partners are working to cripple Putin's ability to finance his war machine. That's Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission. But so far, 12 rounds of sanctions, to a large extent, failed to do their job. The Russian economy grew over 3% last year. The growth was fueled by huge state spending on military production, construction, and on efforts to replace imports with goods made at home. Despite the sanctions, proceeds from Russian oil export, now sold in the East, continue to flow. There is enough money to finance war production. On the downside, the economy is in danger of overheating, and high inflation means rising prices and expensive credit for ordinary Russians. Does isolation of Russia alarm the Moscow student Maxim Lukyaninka? No. Sometimes those limitations, they create something new. And our local enterprises, they're now uh, continuing to operate and uh, they have less concurrence from the companies from the West. But also we have now companies from the East. And in this way, uh, I just see how life is changing. Even when you go out to the streets of Moscow, you see more Russian cars and you see more Chinese cars. Even uh, the Coca-Cola, which is now replaced with Dobry Cola, which is like kind cola. 
but not everyone is so content. Chronicles, Alexei Minailis' project, which polls Russians nationwide, discovers that there is a lot of worry. We've had uh, uh, eight focus groups in four cities and towns across Russia. We were asking people a lot about their economic situation. And we found out that things are not as great as Putin's government is trying to show. It's not catastrophic as well, but it's not really uh, that good. Uh, we had some people from the factories and they were saying things like, yeah, we got uh, the increases in payments, but also we got uh, a much bigger workload. The economy isn't crumbling. People are not reporting that they don't have anything to eat or something, uh, but they report that prices went up a lot, uh, that some uh, medicines they can't get anymore. And uh, this all influences the people's way of life. One of the serious threats to the Russian economy in the long run is a huge deficit of labor. It's estimated that in 2023, at least 3 million vacancies, mainly in construction, retail and food production, were left unfilled. One of Russia's biggest job portals, Headhunter, compares the number of job adverts with amounts of CVs posted for each of those. It notes that demand for workers is at its highest for 15 years. Natalia Danina is chief labor market expert for Headhunter. The situation on the Russian labor market has been quite difficult over the past year, and we expect that it will also be difficult in the coming year. This is due to the fact that employers' demand for people is extremely high and continues to grow. The root and main reason for the current situation on the labor market is the demographic gap. In the decade from the late 90s, when due to the social and economic instability in Russia, during the transition from the Soviet system to a market economy, very few people gave birth. As a result, this very small generation has just entered the labor market. Although the events of 2022 and 2023 have also had an additional impact. Working in Russia, Natalia is being careful, using the word events. A lot of experts believe that the exodus of hundreds of thousands of Russians, some into exile, and others into the army and from there often into oblivion, will harm the Russian economy for years to come. Moreover, the country can't rely on labor migrants from the former Soviet republics of Central Asia. These are being put off by the weak ruble and by Russian authorities' attempts to press gang them into military service. But coming into the third year of the war with Ukraine, the Russian policy shows no sign of reprieve for hundreds of thousands of mobilized soldiers. No one thinks that presidential elections in March will produce any winner other than Vladimir Putin. Yekaterina, whose husband is still at the front, has no illusions. I think demobilization is unlikely to take place with Vladimir Putin. They will simply recruit new soldiers because they need people. They're running out of soldiers because those, um, you know, die. So while there is Putin, there will be no end to the war and there will be no demobilization. Maybe there will be even more mobilization. Maxim Lukyanenko, being a student, is exempt from the army service. But I asked him if, given his patriotic mindset, he would volunteer to go after his studies are finished. Your government needs you because Russia badly needs soldiers and badly needs officers. 
Will you go and fight? Well, you can't say that. You can't say that because if uh, it is obligatory for me, if I get a special note, yes. Do you hope you will not get this note? Well, it's not like hope or not hope. It is a fact. If I get this, I go. If I do not get this, I continue my regular life. Another young Muscovite, sociologist Alexei Minyayla, has every reason to fear for his safety. He's already been to Russian prison once in 2019 for his part in the political protest over falsified elections. He is very careful in his choice of communications, fearing that FSB, Russian Security Service, will pinpoint his location. But still, he does not want to leave Russia. Why? I believe that my calling uh, is to do all which is in my power to change the situation in my country so that Russia wouldn't be a threat to its neighbors, so that Russian people wouldn't be repressed and frightened and uh, so that they would have opportunities to develop pursuing their dreams and so on, not being afraid of being arrested. It's a very big risk. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, uh, the matter is that a lot of uh, very important things are risky. But the purpose of the human's life is not to evade the risks, but to live the life to the fullest. And what about Jana, who lives on the Pacific coast, the almost certain widow of a soldier? She's angry at the way her husband was let down by the Russian army, and that seven months after reading his last words, she still has no idea how the Russian state is going to help her and her twins. So I ask her, what's the right thing for Russia to do now with its war in Ukraine? On the one hand, you know, of course, I would like this to end. But then, do we need to turn back, to give up? Now, at this point, no. Pack up and leave? No. We need to go to the end. It is important for me that Russia wins. This is important to me. Now that I don't have anyone to lean on, no support, what happens next if we lose? What did my husband fight for? There is no answer to Yana's question as the war in Ukraine is entering its third year. Vladimir Putin has yet to spell out precisely what are his goals in this war. This allows him to present Russians with any outcome as intended. But it's equally as likely that he'll use any justification for the fighting to continue. The documentary was presented by me, Oleg Bolderev. The producer was Julie Ball. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. I don't think we realized what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown. It was different. It was definitely different. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hier draußen in freier Wildbahn ist immer selten anzutreffen. Doch wir haben Glück. Willkommen bei McDonalds. Ihre Bestellung bitte? Da, ein majestätischer Hamburger Royal Cheese mit saftigem Rindfleisch aus Deutschland. Nur bei McDonalds. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Oh.